Hello and welcome to Deep North. My name is Eric Pomeranke and we are joined in the studio today by staff writer Yelena Chirich. We are going to be taking a look at her most recent piece, Open Books, a look into the new Center for Icelandic Studies. Open Books, Iceland's priceless manuscript collection, has a new home. Iceland's medieval manuscripts, dating back to the 12th century, are often cited as the country's most valuable cultural heritage. For the general public, however, chances to view these priceless tomes have been few and far between. For the past decade or so, if you wanted to lay your eyes on them, you'd have to head to Reykjavik, to the University of Iceland's Ártnagardur building, and be buzzed into a locked corridor. If you're granted permission to see the rare and valuable tomes, you'll be escorted down to the basement and into a cramped room. The door will be locked behind you, in order to protect the artifacts. It's hardly a welcoming or accessible environment, but that's about to change. Some 100 meters down the street from Ortnagardur, the new Center for Icelandic Studies has risen. The brand new building will house the Autnimagnuson Institute for Icelandic Studies, as well as several University of Iceland departments concerning Icelandic language and literature including the university's language technology, creative writing, and Icelandic as a second language departments. Perhaps most exciting of all, it will house an exhibition of the manuscripts open to absolutely everyone. This center changes everything, Gudrun Nordal, the director of the Árni Magnusson Institute, tells me. We've met in the still empty building so she can show me around. And it all centers around one word, openness. We're opening the Institute and the Manuscript Collection, and we're saying, we own this together. Look, here it is. The new center may not yet have any furniture, but it does have a name, Etta. It was the most popular suggestion from over 3,500 submissions from the Icelandic public. The name references the prose and poetic Etta, and is also a popular woman's name. I'm very happy with the name, both what it stands for and how easy it is to use, Gudrun says. It's a name people recognize in Iceland and abroad. For some 300 years, the manuscripts that are currently in the Institute's collection in Iceland were kept in Denmark. They were repatriated between 1971 and 1997. Ártnagardur was built for the purpose of preserving the manuscripts securely and making them accessible for research, but it was only meant to be a temporary solution. In 2005, the Icelandic government finally approved the funding for a state-of-the-art facility to house the manuscripts, which was to be known as the House of Icelandic Studies. The banking collapse in 2008 delayed the project, but a few years later it was restarted and excavations for the building's foundation began. In 2013, when a new government took office, the project was defunded, leaving nothing but a gaping hole on the lot. In 2016, after some stops and starts, it was properly reinitiated and construction began in 2019. By that point, the excavated lot had almost become a permanent fixture and had been affectionately dubbed the whole of Icelandic studies. Being able to walk through the bright, circular building today seems like something of a miracle. Gudrun walks me through the future cafe and lecture hall, the library and exhibition space, and the classrooms and offices on the upper floors. All three floors feature large windows to let the light in, and even patios where guests can step out for some fresh air. 
A covered courtyard with flower beds lies at the heart of the building. We're so excited to be able to unite our activities here in one place. Both the Artne Magnusson Institute for Icelandic Studies, which is currently in three locations, and also the university departments that are going to be united in this building. We'll have new opportunities to disseminate the material, the data, and the research. We have the best research library in our area, and it's very important to us to be able to provide academics from every corner of the world with good facilities. And we're very excited to be able to welcome students, tourists, and people who are interested in our culture. While the manuscripts are central to the new building, Gudrun says they're just one part of the activities that'll be happening there. A big part of our institute is devoted to the study of the language and to the development of language technology. We also have important national archives in the fields of place name studies and folklore. The Icelandic language and teaching of Icelandic as a second language is therefore central to the building. Researching the language from its beginnings until today and developing language technology tools is the whole spectrum stretching back to our oldest written sources from the 12th century and all the way into the future. The Ardnamagnian Manuscript Collection, located at two institutions in Iceland and Denmark, is on UNESCO's Memory of the World Register. It was established by Ardne Magnusson, 1663-1730, who traveled widely across Iceland collecting vellum manuscripts and books stretching back to the 12th century. On his deathbed, he bequeathed his collection to the University of Copenhagen in Denmark. Iceland was a Danish colony at the time, and it was the only university in all the territories of the Danish kingdom. Between 1971 and 1997, about half of the collection was returned to Iceland, where it has been kept at the Ardne Magnusson Institute of Icelandic Studies. The 3,000 items in the collection are considered invaluable sources on the history and culture of medieval, renaissance, and early modern Scandinavia and Europe as a whole. The sagas they contain, a uniquely Icelandic narrative genre, are still translated and read around the world today. The firm responsible for Etta's design, Hortsteiner Architects, aimed to make the building feel open and inviting, but also needed to satisfy stringent security considerations due to the manuscripts. The storage room, where the manuscripts will be kept when they're not being exhibited, is protected against everything from attempted theft to the unlikely event of a plane crashing into the building, and even from environmental catastrophe. Every detail had to be vetted by security experts, down to the paint, to ensure that none of the elements would damage the manuscripts while they were in storage. The room contains two antechambers, so that when the manuscripts are being removed, they can adjust to the outside atmosphere in stages. Despite the fact they're currently housed just down the street, moving the manuscripts over will be quite an ordeal, Gudrun says. We have to have a police escort with us, and we have to pack each manuscript individually to prevent damage, which will probably take seven to ten days. Even though it's a short distance, that doesn't mean we get to be any less careful. But what makes the manuscripts worth all this effort? The literature is still incredible, Gudrun tells me, and it still appeals to us today. We continue to translate the sagas of Icelanders and the king's sagas and the poetic Edda and to make art and film based on these sources. That shows that they're good stories. For example, the sagas of Icelanders. They have memorable characters and plots, and they're multifaceted, so we can continue to debate their interpretation. 
As proof of their ongoing popularity, Gudrun points out that the sagas of Icelanders were copied out repeatedly through the centuries, even after the printing press came along. Secondly, she tells me, the manuscripts also contain so much knowledge about the societies of the past. By researching those societies, we gain a deeper understanding of where we come from. And thirdly, as physical artifacts, each and every manuscript is a unique work of art. They're a testament to the artistry of the people who made them. There are also plenty of questions left to research. Why were these manuscripts created at that time? Gudrun wonders aloud. Why were there so many manuscripts written in Iceland? Who wrote them and for whom? There must have been a lot of money and a lot of emphasis placed on creating them here in Iceland. Indeed, it took significant resources to create these manuscripts in Iceland. Medieval manuscripts are not made of paper, but rather vellum, calfskin, or sheepskin, which means valuable livestock needed to be slaughtered to produce them. While today they're priceless for the heritage they embody, at the time of their creation they were a lavish display of wealth. And even though they were preserved here, this heritage is derived from this whole area, Gudrun tells me. Norway, Greenland, Sweden, Denmark, the Orkney Islands, and even parts of the British Isles, where the same or similar languages were spoken until the 14th century. The best-known Icelandic manuscripts include the medieval family sagas, but manuscript production continued in Iceland well into the 19th century. After the Reformation, Iceland imported a printing press, which ushered in an era of religious censorship and control over printing. For many farmers, continuing to hand-copy manuscripts was the best way to keep their literary tradition alive. In addition to the well-known sagas, other important manuscripts produced during this time include Bibles, farmers' almanacs, early medical texts, handbooks for botany, and folktales. Gudrun says the new manuscript exhibition will allow these manuscripts to be put into a broader context once more. I did my graduate work abroad, she says, which was so important to me because you need to be able to put our literature in context with what was written around us in Europe. And it's very illuminating to compare this literature to other literature produced during the same period. 12th century Iceland was not an isolated place, as many listeners may think. Rather, it was in constant contact with other cultures. As Gudrun says, Translation had such a big role in the literature of the Middle Ages, translating out of Latin, translating the vernacular languages, and the chivalric sagas. The same academic texts were studied in Iceland as in other schools in Europe. I absolutely don't look at Icelandic literature as an isolated literary culture that only happened here. It was never isolated. There was an unbroken exchange with the rest of the world, and in the periods when there was the most exchange— that's when it developed most, and these interactions definitely went in both directions. That means that Icelandic manuscripts are not just a repository of Icelandic history, but global history. Parts of Heimskringla, for example, take place in Kiev, and some Icelandic manuscripts are among the oldest sources of Ukrainian history. For the new exhibition space, the Orkney Magnusson Institute has requested to receive manuscripts on loan from its sister collection in Copenhagen. We would like the exhibition to reflect the Orkney collection as a whole, Gudrun says. 
As we're creating the exhibition, we see that we're missing certain texts in order to be able to tell the full story of the manuscripts and the culture that made them. We're in good communication with the Danes, and we're trying to figure out which manuscripts can be lent for this purpose. Some are more fragile than others, of course. The exhibition will help situate the manuscripts in the present. As soon as you read books, Gudrun says, even if they were written in the 12th or 13th century, they become contemporary literature. Because you're experiencing them now, as a reader. They come back to life. They become a part of you, and you spread them further. And they become part of more people's lives. Well, thank you for sharing the piece today, Jelena. Thank you. So when we talk about Iceland, uh, very often we hear this word, the sagas or the old Icelandic sagas, um, and it's maybe briefly worth just kind of zooming out for a second. Um, you know, what is a saga? Uh, I think that uh, off the top of our head, uh, we kind of intuitively understand that it's something old. It's a story. It might have something to do with history. Um, yeah. What is an Icelandic saga? Well, I think you're better qualified to answer that question than I am, Eric. So, yeah, please, go ahead. Take it away. Well, yeah, I mean, so just briefly, um, it is a kind of historical genre of literature. Um, I mean, I think that I think that uh, there's a lot of assumptions that we carry as modern readers as to what, you know, like capital L literature is. And I think that... Um, you know, I mean, like whether or not we kind of explicitly think this way, uh, there's a way in which kind of poetry and the novel have kind of basically become like the two main categories of literature. And when you read one of these really old stories, um, it is striking in a lot of ways, just like how different it is. Um, and, you know, so just really briefly, there's kind of four groups that these stories are generally lumped into. Um, there's the family sagas. And this is the group of stories that, um, you know, when we just say a saga or an Icelandic saga, that's generally what people are going to refer to. And this is a collection of stories about the settlement of Iceland. And, you know, like I said, it's semi-historical. And so, um, you know, the kind of the kind of basic pattern of one of these stories is going to be that, uh, you know, way back in the ninth century, Harder uh, Haurfagri uh, in Norway was consolidating power and he was a tyrannical king. And so some, uh, some, some Norwegian families fled to Iceland to escape the tyranny and claim land. And then uh, for several generations, uh, a family line will kind of develop and go through their trials and, um, and, you know, notably, though, it's not always a story in a way that we kind of expect because it is an attempt to write history. And so, you know, like we always maybe when we're reading something kind of expect like a plot line to be nicely tied up or something. But, you know, I mean, like very often in these stories, uh, there's these little threads that kind of don't go anywhere. And it kind of is almost a frustrating experience as a modern reader because we kind of expect certain things from a from a story um but you know because they're kind of halfway between history and a story um they can be a little bit strange to read um and so you know that's an icelandic family saga uh, there's also this kind of other genre called king sagas and this is kind of best encapsulated in, in heimskringla uh, which is a kind of famous collection by snorri sturluson of well you know a history of the kings of norway um, then there's also Bishop's Sagas, which is relatively 
not well known outside of academic circles, but uh, this was very important, actually, and these are kind of the chronicles of the lives of important bishops, specifically from Iceland uh, and uh, more generally in the Scandinavian region. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, this is also kind of important for Icelanders when they were first kind of gaining an awareness of themselves as Icelanders and not Norwegians, because having their own bishops and then uh, eventually a uh, saint, Saint Thorlakur, um, like this really was kind of one of the first ways in which Icelanders were able to kind of express that like we are our own thing that's distinct from Norway because we have bishops and we have mm-hmm. a saint. Um, and then finally, we have this other uh, somewhat puzzling genre maybe of chivalric sagas or Richtere Sögur. Um, and this is actually maybe one of the most interesting ones and, you know, kind of also just uh, is worth briefly kind of connecting it to some of the things that you were talking about in your piece, Yelena, because, um, you know, although it might be easy to think of these sagas as uniquely Icelandic um, and perhaps in that way a little bit provincial maybe, um, you know, these things were very international. And uh, these Schwalrich sagas, for instance, were very often translations of French and German romances. Um, and so there were a lot of Icelanders who would have been, you know, aware of stories like Tristan and Isolde, for instance. Um, and a lot of these stories would have actually made their way to medieval Iceland, um, which I think is really cool. Um, yeah, and I think also, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I, but I think Tristan and Isolde specifically was some older copies of it were preserved in Iceland that were lost in France and in mainland Europe. So the fact that they were copied over and translated is actually what preserved them for his history. Yeah, yeah. For us to read today. Well, you know, and I mean, also it's maybe just briefly worth uh, bringing this point back. And, uh, you know, because the Icelandic sagas are so old um, and they are, and, 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 and they do have this very kind of you know, cosmopolitan character. I mean, like they are really the oldest source for a lot of world cultures, actually. It's really not just a Scandinavian phenomenon. I mean, uh, you know, during like the 9th, 10th, 11th centuries, you have this like Viking expansion and they went everywhere from England to Spain to North Africa to Byzantium and Ukraine. And, you know, as you mentioned, um, even in Ukrainian history, Icelandic sagas are some of the very first sources of like the earliest period of that history. And, um, you know, for instance, uh, there's Harald's saga Sigurdsonar, uh, which is um, kind of an excerpt in Snorri's uh, Heimskringa, and it uh, details the life of uh, King Haraldur uh, Hardrada, as he's known sometimes in English. Um, and he was one of these adventuring kings who went off to Byzantium and before he went to Byzantium, he spent a lot of time in the court of Yaroslav of Kiev. And, you know, I mean, I just think that's really cool how there are these vellum manuscripts that are about 800 years old um, in, you know, on a relatively isolated island in the north. And it preserves all of these little just snippets of histories that are, I mean, thousands of miles away. Nowadays, we go on a trip and we just post some pictures on Instagram. You know? yeah. <laughs> but, uh, King Harald, you know, had some vellum manuscripts written up to, to commemorate his journey. Um, yeah. I, th- th- this is just a very small anecdote, but uh, there's this really great scene from, uh, from that saga 
where it uh, kind of details the Battle of Stamford Bridge, which is uh, one of these kind of famous battles in 1066, uh, where there are Vikings warring over the throne of England. And uh, Haraldur uh, kind of arrives to Stamford with his ships, and he um, goes to King Harold Godwinson, and he basically demands land from him. And uh, Harold Godwinson tells him, the only land you'll get is the six feet of earth I'll bury you in. <laughs> Ouch. And uh, to, to me, that's just such like a kind of action movie line. Um, yeah, and- I think that's the thing. I mean, we recently had the release of the film The Northman, and I think a lot of the dialogue, it sounds very much like that. it's specifically modeled after after this kind of style and, the, and this writing, you know, I will meet you at the gates of hell, this kind of thing. <laughs> and, you know, it's... It is so cool to read these uh, these manuscripts that were written, you know, a thousand years ago almost, and and to see how the language has survived. And that's one of the things that Gudrun was talking so much about. I mean, these are good stories. That's why they've survived so long. That's why they've been translated, um, you know, regularly throughout the past centuries. Like uh, almost every generation has been interested in, in these manuscripts in different ways for different reasons. And you know, translated them and copied them out and and made art and films based on them because just it's good content, as we would say today. <laughs> well, yeah, and, you know, I mean, it's maybe also worth uh, just, um, you know, these aren't just boring stories either. I mean, it's easy to kind of think in your mind, oh, like this is historical, therefore it's very dry. But, you know, I mean, these sagas can have jokes in them. Uh, they can have puns. Uh, like there are also, yeah, these kind of, action movie moments where somebody bests somebody else in a fight and they kind of uh, deliver like a little one-liner or something. Um, So, you know, I mean, you have to imagine uh, in the 13th century, it would have been a rather thrilling read. And I think, you know, the fact that they're going to be accessible now to so many more people is going to make more of the general population and not just the people who specifically, you know, go to school to study these sagas and manuscripts, it's going to make them realize that they are more contemporary texts and they are more kind of tied to us than than we realize. Uh, yeah, actually, you know, it's briefly worth pointing out uh, that for anybody who can't make the trip to Iceland uh, to visit the new uh, Center for Icelandic Studies, um, you can go to handrit.is, that's H-A-N-D-R-I-T dot I-S. Um, and all of these manuscripts have been uh, digitized already. And you can just flip through some of the most famous Icelandic manuscripts and just really see them in their original. Um, you know, actually, on that and on that point, uh, maybe it's worth briefly kind of talking about, like, what do these look like? Uh, you must have seen some in your tour. Um, like, like, maybe you can just kind of briefly describe what it's like to be around these objects. I actually didn't see any on my tour <laughs> because they weren't in the in the building yet. So the building was just uh, constructed. It was still empty when I visited it. At, um, and when they had an open house last April, uh, they sort of were letting people in to kind of see the building itself. But the manuscripts are still in the old uh, storage facility. Yes, and they're that's being yeah, yeah. We're being packed up and we're supposed to be moved over in June, actually. Yes. So, so uh, they actually haven't been moved over yet. Um, and there's a lot of kind of very careful planning that goes into that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it's, so I think it's maybe worth, uh, making a little distinction though. Uh, like often when we think of medieval manuscripts, we think of some of the most luxurious examples, uh, like a lot of these illuminated manuscripts from Ireland, for instance, uh, are very popular and photogenic, like the book of Kells, for instance. 
Um, you know, these manuscripts were produced on relatively humble Icelandic farms, even well-off farms would have been quite humble by continental standards. And, you know, I mean, for the large, for, like for a large part, these books are plain text. Um, some of the more luxurious copies will have large illuminated initial letters, for instance. Uh, some of these will have like marginalia. But, you know, I mean, a lot of these texts are... Like, like it's a small miracle that a lot of them survived. They're very dirty. They were in a smoky farmhouse for 500 years or more. Um, you know, I think one of the most interesting things also is just the marginalia in a lot of these manuscripts. I mean, uh, just in a lot of these old books, you can kind of just see the bored scrawlings of, you know, some kid learning to read, for instance, or maybe... Uh, a scholar or a lawyer who is just a little bit bored and they're doodling something. Um, and, you know, I mean, you also have to think that these books were kind of like, like, like very often uh, you might have a law book and like a book of the sagas. And those were basically like the two books that were in your house and therefore the two parchments that were in your house. And so, you know, just you see little calculations and notes in the marginalia and stuff like that, which I always think is really um really humanizing, just kind of seeing uh, this little brief glimpse into life. Um, but so it is maybe uh, with a touch of sadness that the Etta Center was built because for as long as I remember, there was this hole uh, across from the university. It was uh, practically a, uh, a, a feature of the Reykjavik landscape. Um, but so now now it's built and, uh, you know, maybe for the for those of us who can't visit it, you could just kind of briefly walk us through this new building. What's it like? Yeah, absolutely. I hope that um, many listeners get a chance to visit it, especially when it's it's finally all set up and all the furniture and the books and, of course, the manuscripts and the exhibition and everything um, are all set up. Uh, but the building is it's located on the University of Iceland campus uh, in Reykjavik, and it's quite a large, maybe... Four story, three or four story building with a basement, um, and it's a really circular building. It's got this very interesting sort of shell, this metal shell around the outside of the building that's got uh, words from the manuscripts. This beautiful design, kind of uh, enameled on it, and uh, it's just yeah, it's just an incredibly modern and uh, bright and open kind of circular building. So. When you walk in, you really immediately notice just how the light kind of floods in from all directions. There are windows kind of in all directions, and there's a very sort of minimal design. Um, after I met with Gudrun and, and walked around the building, I actually went on an architectural tour where the architects who designed it were sort of describing the process behind the building and kind of their thoughts in different uh, different aspects and different decisions that were made. Uh, one of the nicest features, I think, is that there's a an inner courtyard that's actually covered, but still sort of open. It still gets fresh air, but it's got a covered sort of roof, um, like a glass roof, so that you still get light in. Uh, but inside that courtyard, you've got flower beds, and you know the staff that are working there and students can kind of go out to that courtyard and have a coffee break or maybe have their lunch there or something. And I, I think that's going to be a really nice feature. Um, so there really is kind of light coming into the house just from from the center courtyard, from every side. And, you know, it's just such a huge contrast to how the manuscripts were housed 
previously in this, you know, tiny little locked room in a basement. <laughs> uh, but of course, the manuscripts are not going to be just kind of like out on a table somewhere. Um, they're going to be in a dedicated exhibition space, which has state-of-the-art uh, glass cabinets and, you know, temperature control and all of those things. And it was really interesting to hear the architects talk specifically about the storage room, where the manuscripts will be kept when mm -hmm. they're not being exhibited. Of course, it's super, super important that that storage room is state-of-the-art and that literally every single tiny detail is taken care of so that they're preserved as well as possible and can just maintain their condition for future generations. And um, they had special security experts and kind of manuscript storage experts <laughs> hired uh, from Denmark uh, to sort of help design the building. And they had to sign off on every single decision, as, as I did mention in the article. Uh, but for example, the paint that's used, you have to make sure that it doesn't contain certain chemicals because mm. paint that you paint on walls uh, does actually give off uh, certain chemicals into the air. And it couldn't yeah. be something that would potentially damage the manuscripts. And um, when you take them out of this storage room, uh, they have time to adjust to the atmosphere outside. So there are two antechambers. And, you know, if you want to take out a manuscript, you got to give yourself something like 24 hours to, you know, take it out from the inner chamber and then let it adjust in stages to the outer atmosphere. Yeah, there's essentially like an airlock. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. Um, and there's also a funny little detail in the reading room that's attached to the exhibition. So so obviously this space is not only open to the public, but many researchers from all around the world are going to come and uh, have the opportunity to take these manuscripts into the reading room and study them, do all kinds of research on them. And uh, next to this reading room, there's a washroom. And you can only use that washroom with permission from the security guard. <laughs> so the security guard has to unlock it and, and lock it and double check that you're not taking any manuscripts yeah, in there yeah. with you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a that's a fun little detail. Um, but yeah, there's all sorts of things. Like there were uh, additional columns installed. If you walk by the building on, on Sjöðurgata, uh, you'll see that there are these metal columns right in front of the sort of water... Uh, there's almost like a little pond right outside the building. And these columns were placed because the security experts uh, determined that it was technically possible for a car, if a, if a really large car, like a Hummer, were crash, would crash into the building from that particular angle, it could potentially reach down to the basement storage room where the manuscripts were kept. So they had to put up these metal columns just to make sure that just in case... Uh, a car veered off the road, uh, it couldn't get through to the manuscript storage room. So all sorts of fun little security details like that. Yeah, it is an interesting design problem where on the one hand, you're designing this building to be as open and accessible as possible. And yet on the other hand, these are invaluable uh, objects uh, that need to be under extremely tight security. Um, you know, actually, something that's kind of interesting, though, that uh, some people might know, some people might not know, um, is that uh, I think that we all kind of have in our mind, and like maybe this kind of comes from crime shows where like everyone is uh, always wearing latex gloves. Um, but actually, if you handle these manuscripts, uh, you do actually have to use your bare hand um, because, uh, like, when we're wearing gloves, we are just 
that little bit less dexterous. Uh, like we're not always used to them. We can kind of slip uh, and it's actually more likely that we tear one of these manuscripts if we're wearing gloves. So it might come as a surprise, but actually the safest way to handle these things is to just wash your hands, dry them, and just be very careful. <laughs> yeah. Often also when we talk about uh, these manuscript collections from Iceland, uh, the name Arne Magnusson comes up. Uh, we briefly heard a little bit about him in the piece, but I think it's also uh, just uh, worth extrapolating a little bit more on his life. And he, uh, so like a lot of Icelanders from his time, he was educated in Copenhagen uh, and he spent time in the Royal Archives. And one of the reasons why he began this collection actually is that he was working on the first ever census in Iceland. So in, in 1703, uh, there was uh, this census that was commissioned. And actually to this day, it's the oldest, most complete census of an entire country, which I think is really fascinating. Um, and so, you know, uh, quite literally, Arne Magnusson went to every farmstead in every district of the island and just knocked on the door and asked how many people lived there. And inevitably, he came across all of these old farms uh, where a farmer had some 500-year-old manuscript and he would just kind of ask them, like, how much they wanted to sell that to him for. And, uh, I mean, it was really by doing this census work that he just had the excuse to, I mean, yeah, quite literally visit every farm in Iceland. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's also a little bit tragic uh, because he really just collected the huge bulk of uh, all these manuscripts um, and brought them back to Copenhagen. And in 1728, there was a bad fire. Um, and th the most important copies, for the most part, all survived. Um, but there were a lot of uh, kind of secondary copies and things that he had multiple copies of uh, and a lot of notes and records that were lost in this fire, which, you know, to me is always very just sad to think of uh, how much has been lost uh, to history, actually. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's so much value in in what we currently, what we still have of this collection and these manuscripts. But just to think of what else was available, um, what else he had put the effort into collecting and then was lost just in a single night, basically, uh, is is quite tragic. Well, uh, on that note, I think that we can uh, rest assured that uh, the Icelandic manuscripts are in good hands now. And uh, yeah, th uh, thank you so much for uh, coming in today and uh, sharing this really interesting piece. Absolutely. I hope that uh, as many listeners as possible get to visit the exhibition when it opens. I'm very excited to visit the exhibition when it opens. So, yeah, it's really exciting to see what's going to happen in this new building. All right. Thank you. Deep North is the official podcast of Iceland Review, the oldest continuously running English language publication on Iceland, covering community, nature, and culture. If you enjoyed listening, please consider subscribing to Iceland Review at our website.